Hello, and welcome to another episode of Lifting the Fog, a podcast that hopes to become a collection of conversations offering support and connecting individuals affected by childhood cancer. In this week's episode, I am joined by Stephanie Edwards Compton, a current PhD student in nutrition, metabolism, and cancer. Steph also has her master's degree in nutrition and dietetics. Um, In this week's episode, Stephanie and I talk sugar and cancer. So nutrition's relationship, I guess, with overall wellness, age, health, cancer is a story that has been told lots of times with lots of different endings. Um, Historically, I have been a believer that anything in excess isn't probably great for you. And that if in this instance, sugar is really that bad for you, a little here and there probably won't kill you, right? But sugar in particular is super fascinating to me. I mean, I watch my young children, when lucky enough to get a little, go totally berserk for it. And why? Like, what's happening to our bodies? And furthermore, like, what's happening inside of our brains to make us want it and like it so much when glucose is introduced? And doesn't glucose serve a purpose in our body? Like, don't we for sure need some glucose? But doesn't sugar cause inflammation and isn't inflammation the recipe for all things bad? Lots of questions about sugar and Steph and I had a great conversation in trying to answer them all. I also want to note before you listen that Steph is not an MD and nor does she claim to be. I think she said that, you know, a handful of times. And of course, all of our listeners know that I certainly am not as well. Um, However, she does do a lot of research on the topic and therefore comes to the table with a super valuable knowledge base um, that I was really eager to hear out. So um, I I, I was excited for this conversation and I hope you guys enjoy it. Um, Lastly, though, before we start this week's episode, I did chat with Steph a little bit about a study that I had skimmed and more so listened to by uh, Dr. Rhonda Patrick on her podcast where she discussed a study done regarding rats who were exposed to excessive and long-term sugar intake. And the study had shown structural changes in the medium spiny neurons and showed impact to the hippocampus and amygdala. So like impacting things like their spatial memory and emotion. Um, So if you're interested in hearing a doctor discuss this data and not me sounding like a sixth grade biology student, I will leave the link to that study in the show notes for you guys to to read. All right, y'all. Um, I hope you enjoy this episode. As always, send in your questions, comments, and ideas for future conversations to LiftingTheFog1, so that's the number one, at Gmail, and continue to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at LiftingTheFog1. And don't forget to share, like, and subscribe. If you want to hear more from this week's guests, you can follow Steph um, on all social media platforms. That's Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at StephSCI underscore access. Um, And I'll also leave that in the show notes. All right, y'all, without further ado, Stephanie Edwards Compton. Sure, we're recording. Okay, well, welcome, Stephanie. Thanks for joining our podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm excited. Yeah, so Stephanie, you are a current PhD student um, Mm -hmm. studying nutrition, metabolism, and cancer, and you also have a master's degree in nutrition and dietetics. Is that right? 
Yes. Yes. Awesome. Um, and so I know that we got connected through Danny who was on, gosh, was that episode five? And we talked a little bit about nutrition and, um, a lot about exercise and, and moving your body because that's her specialty. Um, and so she kind of connected us, which I was so grateful for. And, um, before we forget, and in case we forget at the end of the podcast, where can people find you on Instagram? Because that's kind of how I stumbled across some of your um, your work, especially specific to um, sugar and cancer. And so, what is yeah. your what's your Instagram handle? Where can people find you? Yeah, so you can find me at Steph Access. Um, that's pretty much my handle across most social medias. Um, so I'm also on. I don't use my Twitter a lot, but I'm also on like TikTok. LOL, I just started a TikTok. <laughs> um, and I'm on Facebook and that at that handle also. Okay, awesome. Um, and we'll make sure to put that in the um the oh my gosh, brain fart. What am I trying to say? Um when we post the podcast, we'll put that that in the story. So um yeah. So I guess where to get started, like I said, I kind of, I got super interested in you and your work um, through our, our mutual contact with Danny and just seeing an, an article or a post rather that you posted about the connection between sugar and cancer. And so I wonder if we can just start the conversation with that. And um, I know that a lot working in pediatric oncology, you know, we hear families all the time asking questions about how much does diet um either support or not do really much of anything for my child when they're on treatment and how they, I guess, tolerate treatment. So, um, it's a pretty big topic to unpack. So yeah, I wonder if we can just talk about sugar in general. And at first, like, you know, is there good versus bad sugar? Yeah, of course. So I will give the caveat. I, I always give this caveat. I'm not mm-hmm. technically a registered dietitian, so I may eventually be one, but okay. I'm not technical. So definitely, if you have any like specific questions about a specific situation, definitely talk to your registered dietitian or your physician or whoever is working with your like cancer team or whatever. Um, but with sugar and cancer, so I specifically in my research, I look at metabolism and actually how cancer cells make energy using different like um, energy sources. So one of those is glucose, which we also refer to as sugar. Um, so one of those is glucose and cancer actually uses, um, glucose a little bit differently than our other cells. Um, most of our other cells really like to use what we call, um, and this is a big word, this is oxidative phosphorylation, which basically means that we are sending that glucose down this huge chain of different energy systems and we're putting it in our mitochondria and using oxygen to make a lot of energy at once. So a lot of cells really, really like to do that. And they, they get a lot of energy from like one molecule of glucose. Um, but cancer cells actually don't do that process the exact same way. So they actually utilize sugar differently than other cells do. And other like cells that divide really rapidly do this also. So the way that they use sugar is they actually use it a lot at the forefront of that energy system in this system that we call glycolysis. Um, and basically that word in and of itself means breaking sugar. That's literally what that energy system does. And within that, you don't actually get a whole lot of energy from that just from breaking down glucose. But the whole point of why cancer cells do this is that they actually get all of these other molecules that they can use to build with. And so that's kind of like, how it differs and that they're not necessarily seeking to only be making a ton of energy at once, 
they're trying to make all these little building blocks so they can put them together and keep growing and keep like um, dividing and things like that. So that is called the Warburg effect. And so they do use sugar and make energy a little bit differently than other cells. And so when we're thinking about sugar within our diet, you know, it's, we have to think about the fact that we're eating it, it's going into our digestive system, going into our bloodstream, going all over the place in our body, right? Mm-hmm. And so it's not necessarily that the sugar is going straight to the cancer, right? That, that doesn't really happen. It's kind of going everywhere. Um, and with the sugar in our diet, it's not necessarily that that sugar is what is feeding cancer, right? So I think I said that in my post on Instagram is that you know, sugar actually feeds all of your cells. It's not just the cancer cells. And if the cancer cells don't necessarily have enough sugar from like your diet or from like themselves, they'll get other cells to make sugar for them or they'll make it other ways within like the tumor itself. So they can actually rely on other sources within the body, such as like the liver or other cancer cells or other regular cells to make sugar for them so that they can get that from another source. So as manipulating sugar within our diet, obviously like we have sugar recommendations um, set forth by like what's the recommended daily allowance of sugar, right? Um, But the sugar within our diet and manipulating that might not necessarily translate into well, we're reducing sugar, so we're going to starve the cancer, which I think a lot of people is what that, they kind of get confused about that for sure. And can you also clarify that? So what I'm hearing you say is that, yes, cells use glucose yeah. um, to, to reproduce, mm-hmm. but they don't only, cells don't only use glucose, correct, to yeah. be, to reproduce and, and be healthy cells, right? Yeah, exactly. So a lot of, um, I guess what you would say, quote unquote, normal cells, right? So cells that are not highly like dividing really rapidly, um, they usually use glucose just to make energy with, and they can use other things like fatty acids, um, which we also get from our diet. That's what is in fat. Um, and to a very, very smaller extent, things like amino acids or um, one of which is glutamine, Um, So with cancer cells, they rely really heavily on glutamine, actually. Um, That's something that I am trying to look at in the lab is how they rely on glutamine. Um, But they can use all of these other things and they can feed into other parts of the energy cycle so that they can still make energy even if they don't have that glucose. And they can actually produce glucose from other sources as well. So that's a process called gluconeogenesis, so generating new glucose is what that word means. Um, So they can generate other sources of energy from fatty acids, um, different amino acids. They can feed into all these energy systems so they can still make energy so that they can grow um, and get those other like building blocks that they can use to divide and grow also. So in the long and short of it, glucose is helpful for healthy cell reproduction. We Our bodies need glucose and certainly cancer isn't feeding itself off of glucose and it's going to find ways to make it kind of regardless, but yeah, exactly. So, but can you speak then to also what, you know, is there such a thing, I guess, as a, as good sugar versus bad sugar? So refined sugars versus, you know, natural sugars like you would find in fruits. And is there, is our body able to, to notice and differentiate the, the differences between the two and is one more beneficial than the other? Yeah. So, um, From a, I guess, molecular standpoint, there are different types of sugar. So you have glucose, which is is one kind of sugar. Um, You also have fructose and sucrose. Those are other types of sugars, like molecularly. 
Um, and they do kind of feed in just a little bit differently within the energy systems. Um, so like glucose example, we'll start at the very, we'll usually start at the very top of glucose, but maybe fructose will feed in a little bit down the pathway, but it'll still all go the same place. So it's still feeding into glycolysis. Um, I am not, not personally familiar with whether or not cancer uses fructose differently. That's actually a, an area I probably should look into because that's really an interesting question. Um, but as far as dietarily goes, um, I think a lot of the times there's a lot of talk about, well, we should only be eating natural sugar versus refined sugar. We also we tend to label things as like good sugar versus bad sugar, or some sure. people just label all sugar as bad, right? Yeah. I think within our diet, like for simplicity's sake, to not necessarily label sugar as good or bad, it's just kind of sugar, right? So whether or not it's table sugar versus the sugar that we would find in fruit, both of them have a place within the diet. Obviously, don't be like guzzling like table sugar, right? Like we don't really need to do that. But the the little bit of added sugar that we have, um, as long as we're not going like super far and just having constant like sugar sweetened beverages and stuff like that, we're probably okay with that. And I think also it's good to remember that technically any carbohydrate that we eat is going to be broken down to sugar. So it's your bread, your pasta, your veggies, your, you know, if, if you're eating like honey or something like that, that's also a sugar. Um, and so that's not necessarily something that is bad, right? That we want that to happen because sugar actually and glucose is what feeds our whole bodies. So it's what keeps us like up and thinking and sleeping and doing all of the things. So as far as whether or not there is a good or bad sugar, I think it's just maybe the amount of sugar. So we don't want to fear fruit. Fruit is good for us, right? Um, and other sources like that are completely fine. I don't think that there's any kind of the actual negative stigma that should be associated with things like that, for sure. And I heard you kind of earlier say that there are different types of sugar. So is there... Is there a difference between the sugar that's in a fruit and the sh and like white sugar that I'm using to to bake a cake with? Like perhaps the sugar in the fruit has more fiber or other, I guess things yeah. molecularly that's, inside that's of it point. that yeah. that are beneficial for your body. Yeah, so that's a great point. So technically, they are like so like if you had glucose versus fructose, they are technically different molecularly structured. But like you brought up a good point in that we have those whole foods like a, a whole carb or like an apple or something like that. They have other things in them besides just sugar. Whereas like if you had a tablespoon of sugar, it's just sugar. Um, so that if you had just a tablespoon of sugar and you just ate the tablespoon of sugar, that would go into your bloodstream really, really quickly. It wouldn't be satisfying. It would give you energy, yes, but it wouldn't fulfill your hunger or it wouldn't, you know, help you feel full or it wouldn't have any other kind of benefit to it but if you have something like a whole fruit or something like that one it's going to satisfy your hung your hunger and kind of give you some like oh that that i like that you know some satisfaction with that um and it does also have fiber in it so it's going to digest slower because it has that fiber in it so i had i think i actually made a post this week on my instagram about fiber so saying like you have insoluble fiber, which is like the skin of the apple, for example. Yeah. So that insoluble fiber, we can't break fiber down. And that insoluble fiber is going to help um, kind of bulk up our digestive system so that we're, it's not just going super quickly through our digestive system. It's, it's taking its time. And that insoluble or that soluble fiber, which is like the inside of the apple, it dissolves in water, but we can't still break it down for energy. So basically what that does is it helps us feel full, 
gives us some satisfaction because it's creating that gel-like substance and then um, gives us, it gives it a longer time to digest versus just the, the regular sugar by itself, which doesn't have fiber or vitamins or minerals or anything like that. Do you think, and I heard you say this as well earlier, that certainly there are guidelines out there on what sugar intake should and could look like for individuals based on, you know, body type Mm -hmm. and and all that good stuff. But um, do you think, is there a lot of discrepancy among that kind of throughout like a, you know, the dietetic world or is that pretty agreed upon or... I mean, I feel like nutrition in general is such a crazy topic because (laughs) personally for me, and I'm certainly not a nutritionist or a dietitian, I'm not trained at at all in any of those areas, but I'm super interested in it. So I try to read a lot about it and from different perspectives. And sometimes I just think that, um, you know, what we know about nutrition is that we don't know a ton about nutrition and that yeah. <laughs> it's super individualized because our bodies are super individualized and in our makeup and our genetics and um, dairy can work really well for you and not really well for me. So I guess um, across the board and especially in your profession or line of mm-hmm. work um, and your colleagues, do you, when we talk about sugar intake and what that should look like for individuals, is that... Um, I guess, widely agreed upon, or is there a lot of discrepancy there? Yeah, so sugar is one of those things that, you know, there's a whole lot of research that's coming out about, like, for example, sugar-sweet beverages is something that, which I say sugar-sweet beverages, that's things like soda or, like, juices or, you know, sports drinks, like, things that have added sugar in them. Um, There's a whole lot of research about things like that. So, like, whether we're drinking, like, five sodas a day, obviously you're going to be over your probably recommended sugar intake. Um, But the the recommendation is actually very low. So if you look at, like, the World Health Organization or um, some of the, the bodies like the CDC or the governing bodies in the United States, for example, they're recommending, like, very low like teaspoon amounts of sugar which a lot of us tend to go over right because like you said carbohydrates and fruits are going to break down as sugars anyway in your body and you're not necessarily eating a candy bar yeah and the the recommendation actually for sugar in that in that capacity is added sugar so that is actually like actual like tablespoons of sugar whether that be within like a soda or something like that. So it's not car- it's not counting the carbohydrate sugars. So it's sure. we, we kind of separate them out a little bit like that um, so that we can kind of differentiate between like the food that we eat and like how much sugar we're adding to our coffee, right? Yeah. So like things like that, there's, there's a pretty good consensus, I think, of, you know, we should probably stay within or like a little bit low. I think it's 25 grams per day. Mm-hmm. I might be wrong on that. Don't quote me on that. Okay. <laughs> I, I has been a while. Always encouraging our listeners to fact check us. Yes. <laughs> We're just humans talking. I think that's right. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's, I think it maybe it's, it's closer to like eight teaspoons a day. I don't know, something like that. And I think it also depends on your, your biological sex. Like sure. men can have more than women, sure. that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, so with that, again, we have a pretty good consensus of like, we should probably stay below this line and we do tend to eat above that. But I think there's also the camp of, you know, not necessarily saying like sugar is bad, like don't eat sugar, 
but saying like, hey, let's, let's take a, a moment to think about like, okay, well, how do we feel when we drink five sodas a day? That kind of thing. And then kind of keeping it below that, but not necessarily worrying about the sugar that we get from our food, just that added sugar that we get from like a beverage or eating a bunch of candy bars, like you said. Sure. Yeah. And so, um, kind of also just getting back to the correlation between sugar and, and cancer, of course. I guess mm-hmm. cancer, and our listeners know well, I'm a teacher, not a doctor, mm-hmm. not a nutritionist, but I'll just preface that again. But So I guess kind of cancer simply defined as just the uncontrolled, you know, abnormal cell growth. Does, yeah. does sugar contribute to abnormal cell growth? Yeah, so with... With what we think about, like, what cancer is, right, so we have these, like, hallmarks of cancer, like, this is kind of how we define what cancer is. Uh, One of those is what we call dysregulating cellular energetics, which is basically a fancy way of saying they make energy differently than other cells. Um, I would not necessarily say that, you know, sugar in and of itself is probably not going to cause that that's going to be very much more genetic factors that are changing like mutations or the environment that they're in. So for example, if you're in an environment, if you're selling you're in an environment that doesn't have a lot of energy from one source, maybe you would change how you make energy so you can survive in that environment without having that original nutrient. So like, for example, one of the things that maybe they, maybe one of the reasons that um, they can change their, metabolism and how they make energy is because they don't have a lot of access to oxygen. So if you don't have access to oxygen, you can't use that main energy system because it uses oxygen. Then you use other systems as well. So I don't think it's necessarily that the sugar itself is changing the how the cells make energy. Um, But of course we have, we have some data that says like, you know, some, there's some dietary factors that do influence risk of cancer. I don't want to negate that. Um, but I don't think it's necessarily just the sugar, right? You have to have a whole lot of things that are kind of coming together for cancer to happen and quote unquote, like grow and continue to, to metastasize or, or proliferate, I guess. And two, just to, to preface as well, when I say sugar, I, I, I'm feeling more like um, an excess amount. Like, of course, nobody's going to be able to navigate it. And if you do, bravo, but navigate a lifestyle where it's like zero (laughs) intake. Yeah, Um, exactly. But I guess I'm just curious to know, Yeah, you know, does um, an excessive amount of sugar contribute to abnormal cell growth and or, and you kind of answered that, but like just poor cell reproduction in general, or what about inflammation? Yeah. So that, that's a good point. I'm glad that you brought that up. So when we have, if we have a huge excess of sugar, it can in some capacity contribute to that inflammation. Um, but it has to do with like a more of a huge whole body response, right? So it's not just that the sugar itself is doing something. So for example, if we have an excess amount of sugar, or we have an excess amount of just like calorie intake in general for a sustained period of time, right? So we are constantly at this higher level of sugar intake and constantly at this higher level of calorie intake. What that's going to do is it's going to influence how our whole body responds to that. So I I actually had made a post also about uh, metabolic flexibility. So that is something that can contribute to that inflammation that you mentioned. So for example, if you are constantly like bombarding your body with a lot, a lot of calories, a lot of sugar, for example, and you are having an insulin response, 
So your pancreas is going to release insulin whenever you eat, regardless, Mm -hmm. because it senses, okay, hey, like I have food in my stomach. I need to be able to release insulin into the bloodstream. And what insulin does is it actually tells all of your cells, hey, there's sugar here and we need to take it up. So if you have a really good insulin response, what you can do is like you'll have that insulin come out, your cells will hear that signal and they'll say, okay, let me move my glucose transporters and suck up all the sugar that's in the blood. So you're able to control your blood sugar really well in that case. Um, but if you're eating a ton of like excess in general, so like that's extra carbs also, it's not just sugar, but that excess sugar also, yeah. then you are constantly having that insulin response and it becomes to a point where your cells start to say, well, I, I can't hear you or they, they can't pick up as much because they don't respond to that insulin as, anymore as well as they did beforehand. And so what ends up happening is then you have excess sugar in the blood that contributes to you know, that can lead to diabetes eventually. It's that type two diabetes. Um, and it can also lead to like maybe storing fat in other places within your body that it shouldn't be stored in like your liver, your muscles. Um, and that is what we call metabolic syndrome. So metabolic syndrome is when you, you don't really have that insulin response anymore. Your cells can't really hear you, um, can't hear the insulin response. And then they start, they can't get the sugar out of the blood. The sugar stays high in the blood. And then that can lead to like further inflammation. Now we don't really necessarily know like, you know, chicken or the egg, right? Is it that something else causes the metabolic syndrome and does metabolic syndrome cause something else? Mm -hmm. But we know that that's a relationship that happens. And so with that, it does increase some of that more, there's more inflammatory signals. um, And especially if we have like inflamed adipose tissue that like can't store fat correctly. And so the cells start bursting and then it sends another signal like, Hey, I'm broken, come fix me. And so when the, when the immune system comes and kind of response to that, then we get that inflammation too. Yeah. So that can contribute for sure. Um, with metabolic syndrome, and I think I said this in my post, because it, it sounds really scary, right? It sounds like it's like, oh no, like I don't want this to happen. Yeah. But when we, when we think about it, as long as we're, we're eating relatively well, and we're, if we're getting any exercise that we can, that's definitely going to help that insulin response. Like just moving your muscles is going to have them take up glucose. So the exercise, you know, making sure that we're eating, you know, a vegetable, as yeah. I like to say, mm-hmm. like eating a vegetable, moving our body, you know, eating kind of within our means. It's not something that we need to be like, oh no, like freak out about. But I think definitely focusing on a good, healthy, well-rounded diet, getting in whatever exercise we can, right? So it, it doesn't matter. You don't have to go super hard, but whatever's in your capacity, I think that's important. And, and, I feel like you touch on a good point too of just honestly anything in excess isn't mm-hmm. probably yeah. great. And yeah, yeah, and and like I said earlier, I'm I'm super interested in this topic in general, so I'm always kind of trying to 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 read up on different uh, perspectives and um something I just was recently reading and um I I feel like sugary drinks are always the top of all anything yes. I read about sugar and cancer, it's, it comes down to like soda. But I was just yeah. recently reading a study um, with the correlation of men who drink sh- um, sugary sugary drinks. Um, it's like triple the risk of prostate cancer. Um, yeah. But so sometimes I have a hard time differentiating. Like, is it is it the sugary drink in that instance, or if you're drinking? five sodas or, or 10 sodas a day, like also what's obesity doing to your, to, to higher your, your risk of, of cancer. And 
So I, I guess I don't know, can, what can you speak to, like, the, the studies that are out there that, that do say, like, um, and, and I think that I was recently reading one um, similarly with breast cancer, and it was, like, triple yeah. the rates with women that, that drink su- sugary drinks and higher incidences of breast cancer or prostate cancer. So um, yeah. is it more than just the sugar in those incidences? Yeah, I love that you brought this up. This is a great, great topic that I, I really love to talk about. So with, with a lot of these studies, I think it's important to remember that a lot of the times we can't say like, this is why we can't say sugar causes cancer. And a lot of the times it's because we can't do what we call experimental studies. So there's two different types of study that you can do. You can do an experimental study where you you basically you're controlling every variable, right? So you, you would have like a person or a mouse or whatever the subject is, yeah. you would give them sugar and then you would see if that sugar caused cancer. So you would like, you would kind of go within that. But a lot of the times we can't do that in humans, right? So we can't really like force feed people sugar and be like, ha, did you get cancer or not? Because it's unethical. So what we do with those is we do observational studies. So we observe, we take data of saying like, okay, well, these people had five, you know, sodas a day. And then like out of 10 of them, three of them got cancer. So we can say then that sugar, that sugar beverage is correlated with the cancer, right? So we see a positive relationship. So we we can say that they're related, but we don't necessarily can say that they cause each other. Does that make sense? Yeah. So it's like like thinking about those two different things. Um, Obviously we still, there still is a relationship, right? So we, we don't just throw everything out the window because we can't say it causes it, right? Um, It's still useful to know. And you brought up a great point, too, of like, well, is it the fact that it's a sugar beverage or is it the fact also that technically because it has sugar in it, it has higher calories also? And so then is that contributing to obesity or any kind of weight gain? Right. So we have all of these different things that it could be. And it may not necessarily just be the sugar, but it could be the fact that then where they're having five sodas a day, maybe that's a thousand more calories a day. And so then they have a thousand more calories and then that leads to weight gain and then that weight gain can influence cancer also. So we have that like weird, <laughs> weird conundrum relationship where that's that's a really, really common thing with nutrition research. That's just kind of the nature of <laughs> nutrition in general, which, you know, can be kind of confusing when you see different headlines of saying like, oh, well, sugar causes cancer when really it could have been the fact that they gained weight or, you know, that sugar did increase inflammation or something like that, where it's like not necessarily just the sugar. Does that make sense? Yeah. I love that question. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I similarly, so this, um, I follow a uh, Dr. Rhonda Patrick and, and she mm-hmm. is, um, always, she does a lot of research with um, sugar and its correlation to cancer and aging. And she had just recently posted something again, and I've seen it, I've seen this kind of um, a few times, but this study that they, they did with rats and how this like excessive and long-term, I guess, higher than normal blood sugar was impacting the hippocampus and the amygdala. So that like, you know, memory and emotion um, mm-hmm. beginning to atrophy in these rats and they weren't able to, um, I guess, navigate through their mazes as well. Um, yeah. but I think, so again, it's just, when you read that, it's hard to differentiate is this, what, what contributes to higher than normal blood sugar? Cause the, this article, mm-hmm. um, was very forthright in saying that, you know, there was the, the, the group of mice that had sugar, water, and access to it at all times, you know, all throughout the day. So yeah. higher than normal blood sugar, is that 
like how how do we really measure that i guess and is that mm -hmm. just these rats that are drinking the sugar water all day long so of course if that's all that they have in their diet that they, that that would be the outcome yeah, yeah. So that's actually a really interesting study also. Um, with the with the thought of kind of like, is it is it that they didn't have any other, I guess my question would be, did they have any other source of food or was it just sugar water? Because that's going to impact obviously how they digest it, right? So yeah, if they have, true. If they have um, some kind of food in which they have like some carbs in it or some protein or like any like fat or whatever, that would slow the digestion. So the important thing I think to think with this and with blood sugar also, um, is that insulin response that I mentioned earlier. So if we, if we're like those rats and we're constantly drinking sugar water just all the time, all day long, basically what that's going to do is we're going to get that sugar in our blood because it's going to digest really quickly. Um, and that's going to make that insulin go up. So your, your pancreas is going to say, Hey, we have sugar. Like we need to get out of our body, our, our brain is involved in that process also. Mm -hmm. And then we're going to release insulin. And then insulin is going to try to get that blood, that sugar out of our blood, right? But if we have that sustained response, if we're constantly having our insulin really, really high, basically we're, our cells are eventually going to start ignoring it, right? So sure. because it's always high, it's always up. And so they're, they're going to be less sensitive to it because it's always there. So like, just like if you have like a noise in the background and like at first it's really annoying mm -hmm. and then the longer it's there, you kind of stop hearing it. It's kind of the same thing. So like you, you when you have that sustained constant insulin signal, your cells are kind of like, well, it's just always there. So I'm just going to stop listening to it. So I think with that, it's, it's important, you know, if we're, if we're constantly having sugar and we're constantly having that insulin response, that's definitely going to start contributing to that metabolic syndrome in which we stop listening. We have elevated blood sugar. We have to, we store it somewhere. So that may be like, you know, fat stored other places. And that's going to lead to that more inflammatory kind of condition, right? So if we're constantly having that response, I think that's definitely something that could like kind of contribute to that kind of physiology. Sure. Yeah. And, and I guess too, when I was like reading through that and then listening to her kind of dissected mm -hmm. on her podcast, um, yeah. I just think, you know, the changes that we as individuals try to implement in our own diet. And sometimes yeah. I struggle with like, of course, sometimes it seems pretty rudimentary and obvious what is quote unquote, good for you and maybe not so good for you. A bag of potato chips versus like an apple. Um, yeah. But certainly the kind of 80-20 rule and knowing that if I allow myself to have sugar that may be mm -hmm. redef um, not redefined, refined <laughs> um, and not natural sugar. So if I allow myself to like indulge in a in a cupcake at a birthday party or, or whatever that it's to me it's like the the amount that you're doing that or not doing that and how that imp really overall impacts your your body yeah exactly yeah so if you I don't know if I'm are kind of like I guess articulating that correct but it's like you know the difference between me and the rat that's only being exactly. exposed yeah. to the sugar water and the amount that I'm subjecting my body to like Oh, you know, overwork to, to deal with all this glucose that I'm shoving down my throat. Yeah, exactly. So I think that's a great point that 
necessarily like how kind of how I guess quote quote healthy because that's a very individual um, how our health is is really a cultivation of what we do all the time so like like you said 80 20 rule is a great thing to think about so what we do 80 percent of the time is going to have much more influence than what we do 20 percent of the time so like one soda is definitely not going to send you in some metabolic syndrome like yeah. spiral right yeah. so like having even like one or two sodas a week that's probably not going to do that much but if you're having like 10 a day that's probably going to do much because you're having that you're having it more often than not right yeah and and also with that study, you know, I, I have not read that specific study, but for example, like you are also moving. I don't know if the rats were exercised or not. And so like you're burning energy also, like you're getting out and you're walking or you're playing with your dog or you're playing with your kids or, you know, you're going to the store or something like that. You're moving also. So that's going to have some impact in how your body responds to what you eat and kind of what you need. So if you're moving more, you're probably going to need like, you know, it's yeah. going to be different response than if you're just sitting in a cage drinking sugar water like those rats were. Again, I don't know if they were exercised, but, but that's a great point that mo- most of what we do, if we do it most of the time, and of course those little treats are not bad whatsoever. I don't, definitely don't think we should ever think that like having a cookie or a donut is bad, um, but having it sparingly and not just having like donuts all day, right? That kind of thing. Yeah. Can can you speak to though? Um, it's kind of funny. So my youngest kiddo is eighteen months and tried to abstain from like, you know, sugar for the first first year or so. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, just recently, like if if brother has like a special treat, she's definitely interested. And it's just so funny. <laughs> my husband and I both are like, gosh, like you just it's like our human instinct to like, yep, that's sugar. And I love it. Like, um, yeah, the, yeah. I remember the first time, even her first birthday, the first time she really had sugar and just that immediate, like, this is great. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so yeah. like, what is glucose doing inside of our bodies? And I guess to our brain or that, you know, part of our brain that's connected to the reward circuitry, like to know, like, I want this, I like it. Yeah. So I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that it is a very quick source of energy, right? Sure. So when we're thinking about our bodies as like basically made to survive as long as they can, survive as well as they can, they want to be really efficient, right? So our, our energy systems and how we break down things and how our brain thinks of food, we want to be as efficient as we can so that we can like, you know, if we need to go running off into the woods and not eat for five days, we're efficient with our energy. And so a lot of that like added sugar is very efficient because it's very, it's broken down very easily. Right. Yeah. And so I think, I know I, I'm not necessarily a, a neurologist or know a whole lot about like the circuitry of the brain. Right. Yeah. But it has to do with that kind of reward system and that we know, okay, this is a really great source of energy. It's really quick. I like it a lot. It tastes good. And a lot of the times, you know, like if we're given like a cupcake or something, we have like that fat and that delicious carb and like all this good stuff kind of put together. Sure. So it's not necessarily just the sugar that's doing that. We also have like all these other things that our brain is like, Ooh, that's delicious. And I really like that. And it's going to help me in the long run. Um, again, I don't know all of the, the brain chemistry behind that, but I think it definitely has to go with the fact that we want to be as efficient as possible. We can't, we don't necessarily, I do want to say this, we're not necessarily addicted to sugar. So a lot of people like to say that, Um, but it's not necessarily an addiction because we can live without it, right? When we don't have to like detox from it or anything like that. But um, it's definitely something that triggers kind of a more 
you know, subconscious response of this can help me in the long run kind of thing. And other things that we can digest will give our body energy, correct? Like, yeah. like you're saying sugar just does a good job. It's just kind of that quick boost. Yes, exactly. Yeah. But also on the contrary can kind of be a quick crash or no. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So like if, if you were to eat, like say, say you have a cupcake, right? So you have like the icing and the, the actual cake itself. And maybe you have like some sprinkled sugar on top. We'll, we'll say that. So our sprinkled sugar on top of we're just to eat like the straight sugar, it would di- be digested super, super quickly. So we have a super fast insulin response. Um, it would go through our digestive system quickly. We'd take it up really, really quickly, and then we would kind of crash down. So that's that crash that we refer to as that insulin response. Sure. So we kind of, you know, uh, if we respond really quickly, we're going to crash really quickly. Now, if you had eaten that sugar on top with, say, the icing that has fat in it, it would digest more slowly. So that fat is also satisfying, right? We like fat um, because it gives us a lot of energy when we do end up breaking it down. Mm -hmm. But that fat is more satisfying and it's going to slow our digestion. So you have a slower insulin curve than if you just had straight sugar. So you're going to have a a little bit of a slower curve um, and you'll still, you know, obviously we still go down after we have a meal, but we're not going to crash as hard as if we just had straight sugar. Um, And the same thing for that carb. So adding all of those together, you're going to have a, a little bit of a slower insulin response than if you only had like a soda, right? So soda is going to send us up and that's that sugar crash that we usually refer to as that insulin response. Yeah. I can remember, um, whenever I'm pregnant, I get super hypoglycemic. Oh yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And my OB would always tell me, you know, make sure you kind of balance out when you're mm-hmm. feeling puny, balance out like the cracker with like a protein. Yeah, exactly. So that that yeah. crash from that you initially get from it does isn't you know so hard. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So pairing pairing all of our macronutrients together, so not just Super having important. carbs, adding in protein and fat is going to make it first of all like just a better meal in general. It's going to be delicious, but it's going to help us with that insulin response. Also, we're not going to go as hard at first, and we're going to kind of go more of a sustained slower digestion and slower insulin curve for sure. So good thing to be mindful for even in general when, you know, like I've got a a young four-year-old who's bounces off the walls. So if he does have sugar, like just being mindful about what he's pairing it with. So his body isn't doing those, that kind of roller coaster of a insulin boost and then crash. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And I, you know, I often hear um, oncologists that I work with, um, talk to families who have questions about diet and say, Hey, if that keto diet or that low sugar diet, or, you know, what, what, what have you makes you feel good, makes your child feel good and you see good outcomes, then stick with it. But I can't necessarily tell you that that's going to make them tolerate chemotherapy better or, um, kick cancer's butt better. Um, what, what are your thoughts about about that? I think that's great advice. So I think a lot of the times, especially on the internet, which kind of sucks, but a yeah. lot of the times on the internet, we, we have people that say, oh, keto is like the cure or like the diet for anyone that has cancer, which that's not necessarily true. Our diet is so individual and what, what our body tolerates is not going to be the same as what someone else's body tolerates. And even within like the kind of dietary research around like, okay, well, what diet is better for cancer treatment? It's still going to be really individual. And I do think it's important to say like, you know, there is no diet out there that's going to cure cancer by itself. 
So like the keto diet is not going to starve cancer of sugar and kill it. Like that, that's, that's a lot of the times what we hear kind of the rhetoric around the keto diet, especially about, but it's not necessarily going to be something that's going to be a cure-all and a fix. Yeah. But if that's something that you like to do and you find that you feel good on it and you think that it helps, I mean, I kind of say go for it also, like as long as it's not detrimental to your health, like you're still eating vegetables and like you're not maintaining a healthy weight. Yeah, exactly. You're, you're maintaining your weight. You're not losing a ton of weight. You have all your vitamins and minerals that you're getting and that you should get in a day. As long as you don't feel awful on it, I kind of say go for it. It's going to be each individual, obviously work with your like healthcare provider on this, Sure, but like experimenting with what makes us feel good and what keeps us kind of keeps our healthy cells healthy and what we can eat and what feels good, especially when we're undergoing cancer treatment, right? Like we have such individual changes in how everyone responds to it. And some people are not going to think that a keto diet sounds good to them or they can't keep it up. And then some people may not even be able to eat a lot in general. So just kind of whatever feels the best for you and keeps your weight up and keeps your energy up and makes you feel good. I definitely think that's worth talking to your healthcare provider about and kind of getting that support there too. Yeah. I mean, and I think that you, you can say that the data does show that um, yeah. not maintaining a healthy wheat, wheat weight rather is mm-hmm. definitely um, not going to help your body tolerate chemotherapy and poor outcomes there. But um, I think that if oncologists and cancer researchers knew that, I guess, for a lack of better words, starving cancer cells of sugar worked and cured cancer, then that would be at the front of the lines of cancer treatment. So exactly. Yeah. Um, just super interesting. And, um, I, I do, I feel for our oncology parents that definitely, you know, they want to try anything and everything and how can I make, you know, my, my child or maybe my personally, my body feel better and handle cancer treatment the best that I can. So I definitely know this is an avenue that families are really curious about. Um, So I just appreciate your insight on it. And I think the work that you're doing is really great. I know that specifically you're doing a lot of um, research with ovarian cancer. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. So I specifically study ovarian cancer. Very cool. Yeah. Yeah. I, I really like it. It's, it's, very interesting research. Um, so mainly I'm just looking at how those ovarian cancer cells uh, make energy and how um, how the, well, I guess I could, should explain this rather because not everyone that listens is going to know exactly what ovarian cancer is. Yeah. Um, ovarian cancer metastasizes a little bit differently than other cancers. So a lot of cancers tend to go through the blood or the lymphatic system. Um, but ovarian cancer actually just moves through the um, abdominal cavity and so the way that it does that is it forms these like little balls of cells called spheroids. And so those, and they're called spheroids because they're balls of cells. Um, so those spheroids are actually what kind of move around within the abdominal cavity. And that's how they like kind of move to new locations and metastasize. Uh, whereas other, other cells kind of just move through our circulatory systems. Um, and so I study not only the, the actual like cells that would be on the tumor, but also the spheroids and how their metabolism differs because it is different. And so we're trying to see whether or not, well, if you have those steroids, are they surviving better so that they can get to a second location or like kind yeah. of like what's going on there? Yeah. So that's, that's specifically what I look at and how they make energy. So I look at like glucose and fatty acids and amino acids and like all these different pathways so that we can see like what exactly is happening at these different time points. 
Super interesting. Yeah, yeah. I really like it. It's very interesting. <laughs> well, I love your Instagram. I'll definitely be continuing to follow. And as you post new um, exciting stuff, maybe we can have you back on the pod to talk about it. Because um, yeah. I think this is all, nutrition is just so interesting. And there's just so yeah. much, like you were saying, the internet kind of there's there's just this sea of stuff like for everybody to try to navigate and figure out and it seems so trendy and so it's it's tough but I think we can definitely all agree upon and just to to kind of wrap this pot up that if you have questions concerning your diet and how it impacts your cancer and or cancer treatment to please talk to your oncologist about that make sure that um, you're maintaining a, a healthy weight and um, just have those conversations with your with your oncologists. I know that they're they're happy to have those with you and address those yes, concerns. Sure. So um so this is just some additional information. Definitely um, Stephanie and I are not oncologists. We're just <laughs> <laughs> just chatting about what she knows about cancer to be true or cancer, uh, sugar to be true. So just appreciate your time. And I wonder if one more time you can tell listeners where to find you on all of your social media outlets. Yeah. So I'm at Steph.Sci, it's just S-C-I dot access. Um, and that's my handle on most social media platforms. So. Okay. Awesome. And then our listeners feel free to, um, when we post this episode you can comment on on the episode you can um message us through instagram twitter and facebook or you can email us at lifting the fog one at gmail with questions um specific to the, this episode or not happy to try to answer those but thanks again steph for your time yeah thank you so much for having me yes it's been a great time <laughs> yes thanks so much stay stay safe during this weird time Yes, you too. Thank goodness for Zoom. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) All right. Thanks. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to another episode of Lifting the Fog. As always, please email us at liftingthefog1, that's the number one, at gmail.com. We want to hear from you with your questions, concerns, thoughts, and ideas for future conversations and topics to dive into. And subscribe, whether it's on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, but subscribe and rate us. We would also love for you to follow us on Instagram and Twitter at liftingthefog1, and please hashtag us at hashtag liftingthefog. And as always, Lifting the Fog is an independent podcast. All information, thoughts, and opinions shared are for informational purposes only. No material on this podcast is intended to be substituted for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Please always seek the advice of your qualified health provider with any questions that you may have. Thanks for tuning in.